My name is Vida, Sister Prince. Today is Tuesday, April 6, 1993, and I am interviewing Catherine Weston on her life for the Oral History Project, Race and Memory in St. Louis. This is an independent project supported by the Missouri Historical Society. Just before we start, um, you were born in 1906. No, 99. 99, and so you were 84. Will be the 28th of April. Okay, 24 years old. Uh, you started to talk about your your mother. Oh, I said she was a teacher, and she taught math and Latin. Uh -huh. My father, an Episcopal priest. Episcopal priest. Oh, he was. Yes. Um, and this was in Savannah, Georgia? No. Well, he did live in Savannah, and I was born in Savannah, but they left Savannah and moved to North Carolina, where he took on the work that my grandfather had started, who was also an Episcopal priest. And was this in Tarboro? Tarboro, North Carolina. Okay. Um, so the church was very... It was started by my grandfather. What was... The, go ahead. That was all. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. What was the name of the church? St. Luke's. St. Luke's. Episcopal Church. Um, so you... What was it like to be a... The child of a, of, a, of a clergy, yes. restricted in a way, because in small towns, and it was a small town, people saw everything with magnifying glasses, but I managed to survive. <laughs> Quite well. Um, well, tell me about living in the small town. It meant that with a small or limited income, your parents had to be very creative in providing recreation or activities. And I went to the church had <clears throat> a school, so I went to the church school. I have never been to a public school. All of my education has been in private schools. And um, that afforded the ability to have an education. Um, my mother also taught music, so we had um, music lessons and the exposure that that provided because there were always these uh, performances that you had to do as a part of your training. Uh, 
there was a movie theater um, that we went, but with restrictions because we had to sit in the balcony. And that disturbed my mother much more than my father. Um, he could see it as a, a part of the community mores, and he was not the fat fighter, but she could be the agitator. Uh, and I remember a Ku Klux Klan convention and a parade, and my mother became very upset because of the Ku, Ku Klux Klan to us as little children meant nothing but a parade and we wanted to see. So my father took us. But their argument, we, I knew they, the atmosphere between the two of them was not embellished by, but we went. Mm -hmm. um, there were little incidents that I can remember. Perhaps not the front example. Walking was a great um, activity. We walked everywhere. And uh, on Sundays, if the weather was bad, we went to visit a relative that lived. It would be like St. Louis and East St. Louis, but it was called Princeville. And a friend of the families lived there whom we called Grandma Cubs. If the weather was very bad, we went to visit Grandma Cubs. If the weather was nice, we went to visit my grandfather's grave, because that was a little farther away, but walking. And on our way to the cemetery one Sunday, some children were playing. They said something as we passed. I don't remember what they said, or I didn't even hear what they said, but my mother said, Look at those children. You see how stringy their hair is? Look at their color. They look like the chalk in the classroom, don't they? Well, you mustn't pay any attention to what they say, because they don't know any better. They haven't had enough to eat. And their brain has been affected. So. That was the end of that. Another instance, we were walking and we were passing the White High School. And I heard the children playing. They said, oh, black clouds rising. Mama looked around, she said, oh, isn't it too bad? Those children have such bad eyesight, they can't see God's beautiful sunshine. And you still remember it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
because later I realized when I was in college and girls were exchanging stories and they um, mentioned black cloud as being one of the ways that white people referred to Negroes. But at the time, you see, it had no significance. Mama said they had bad eyes. Mm -hmm. So I thought they had bad eyes. Yeah. So that has been the background for how I have been able to live and not be bitter mm -hmm. first. People don't know any better, and they, are, they have limitations that they, they have problems. What, what your parents tell you is of great value or not of great value, depending, I mean, it How really you, shapes, you make up it. it shapes <coughs> you, it's, um, I saw something in a movie once at the end of it that said, first things learned are the hardest to forget. We pass them from one generation to another. Which is very true. Mm -hmm. And I guess depending on the temperament of the person, um, those were seeds sown so that some of the experiences that came after did not leave me with an attitude of bitterness or contempt. She put it on them and, and where it belonged instead. Mm -hmm. um, was there much interaction or any interaction with the white community? Um, only through the church because the priest at the white church would come to our congregation during Lent and then shopping because almost none of the stores um, in the community uh, had uh, any Negroes in them. One store I remember that had an elevator and they had a girl who, she was a woman reading, uh, who was um, a person that we all knew in the community who ran that uh, elevator. But all of the clerks and the store owners were white. Um, Catherine, uh, <coughs> did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, one brother who is living in New Rochelle, New York. I had three sisters, but they have all died. Uh, how old is your brother? He was born in 1910. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, you, so you stayed in Tarboro and until until I um, went away to school. Mm -hmm. 
and then I would go back for summer vacation until I finished school and moved to St. Louis. Uh, you went to school in, in Knoxville? Yes. Knoxville College in Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, you said that uh, you came to St. Louis on June 8, 1933, and I believe you said it was a momentous day, was that? Yes. The temperature was over 100. And Mark, how long have you lived in St. Louis? 60 years. It's so, my home. I was born here. You, oh. Well, Market Street was being widened, and it was all torn up. And this union, we came by train because that was the mode of transportation. But we were directed from the train by the people who met us through the baggage section and out into Market Street. There was no air conditioning, of course, in that time. And we wouldn't have uh, known about it anyway because you didn't go through the station. And we came out into yeah, all Through the baggage room. <laughs> all of this. Excuse me, was there a sign or, or did somebody just tell you that's what you did? Um, they told us because um, there were some people who met us because the school had notified a former student that we were coming. And you, you, we have to, I want to say for the sake of the tapes that you were a social worker. Yes. And did you already have a job? Yes, we came oh. to a job. Okay. There were three of us that came from Bishop Tuttle School of Social Work. And we came because one of the directors of the agency was an Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. And she knew the need in St. Louis for social workers, black social workers, or Negro social workers, as, as we were called then. Because the educational system in St. Louis had not provided any of their students. That's how we happened to come. So there were no black social, Negro social workers there were, out of St. Louis? No. So they had to send away. They got three of us from Bishop Tuttle School of Social Work, and they got some, I don't remember the number, that came from the Atlanta School of Social Work. Um, right, so they met you and told you? Come through the baggage room and out into this intense heat and the terrible, um, disruptive street because it was torn and the street was torn up all the way out to Jefferson Avenue. And then we came into an roundabout way to North St. Louis to the Whittier apartment.
that was what made it so unforgettable. Um, as a um, worker, we were assigned, of course, to the Negro section of the city, and there were two um, all-Negro districts. One was called Biddle District, and the other one was called Mason. I don't know why the names, but that's the Mason District was west of Jefferson Avenue, and the Biddle District was east of Jefferson. And I was assigned to the Biddle District. And you didn't come. There were general, a few general staff meetings when all of the city came together. Other than that, you never saw the white workers and they never saw you. Um, your caseloads were, of course, sec segregating. There wasn't any thought of anything else. That was the the climate in the country where I had lived. There were separate schools and everything separate, and it was accepted. That was the way it was. Did you find St. Louis uh, much different than Tarboro? No, not at all. I didn't find it so because I'd been accustomed to. Um, but but you didn't. Did you have to ride in the back of the bus in Tarboro? There were no buses. It was a small town. Everybody had his own transportation, or you walked. Okay, uh, or in Tennessee. I I'm trying to get an answer about St. Louis because uh, at some point I hear some people said that they did, but St. Louis is supposed to have not had that particular uh, Jim Crow? No, not on the streetcars when I came here. Okay. It didn't. Mm -mm. Someone had written an, an article in the newspaper not too long ago depicting her life as a child, and she said that. So. She went to the back of the bus. Well, it wasn't that way in 33 when I yeah. came here. Okay. Um, there were um, patterns where people said that uh, you weren't supposed to ride the buses. The area where I lived, the streetcars were the most convenient, so a road streetcar. But in the occasion that I had to ride the bus, I never had anyone say anything to me. Mm -hmm. I never had. That wasn't. And you said you lived 2420 or Whittier? North Whittier. North Whittier. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that was in the Ville? Yes, that's the Ville. Okay. Um, and you lived with a family? After that. Uh -huh. when I left oh, you lived with the three, with the other two girls? Girls, uh-huh. Three of us shared uh -huh. their apartment. Um, 
but I would like to uh, have you um, tell me about the Ville in those days, if you would. What was it like to, to live there? It, it must, was at the time when it was at its high? I would suppose so, because being an outsider, you more or less um, circulated with your own group. Um, there was a theater, the Amethyst Theater, that we went to. Poro College had already moved from St. Louis, so that I've heard a number of references to it, but it was not um, in operation in 1933. Uh, that's where the Mrs. Malone had her school. Um, in, in the area, the hospital was being constructed and the um, institution now known as the Anna Malone Children's Home was known as the Colored Orphan Home. And it was still at the same location. And I, um, on a number of occasions, took the young people, they were children really, under 12 or 12 and took them to the Muni Opera on Monday night, which was free for all agencies in the city at that time. And there was a taxi cab company. They had two cars, and the owner was named Bige, B-I-G-E, Wyatt. W-Y-A-T-T, and he would take as many youngsters as the car would hold, and me, and he charged me 15 cents, and he'd come back and get us. For the whole evening? Mm -hmm. sounds like everybody cared a lot about everybody. That's the thing that we miss now, that there, it was a caring community. And did everybody know everybody else? Did you get a sense of that? I, I got a sense of them caring, whether they knew you or not. Um, did the people that lived in the Ville have any relationship, or did they know, like the people that where you worked in in the, in the Biddle district? No. They were the Biddle district was so far removed, you know, because of those the people east of Jefferson Avenue and. There was a lot of clannishness. The people east of Jefferson or east of Grand, 
people west of Grand, I will say, seem to have had a little feeling of superiority. Um, the schools, for an example, Vashon had not been opened very long, but it was east, and Sumner was west of Grand, so there was great rivalry between the two. Um, the church that I attend now was then located on Garrison at Locust. And people of color all over the city had to go there because they were not welcomed at the other Episcopal churches to the point that there is a story <clears throat> that I've heard about the church in Webster Groves. The church is known as Emmanuel Episcopal Church. And some of the members of color lived in that area and decided to go to the church. They were, some of the members of the church were quite concerned. They were afraid to say anything to these people because they decided that they must have been the servants of the bishop. The bishop at that time was Bishop Scarlett. He lived at the cathedral downtown, and he didn't have any, any servants as such. But their regard for him was such that they never said anything to the Smiths about it. So that's one of our private stories. Because <laughs> the two people are now dead that their descendants are around. <laughs> and I don't know that the descendants know the story. Know that story. Um, speaking of humor, how did that fit into the, the life and things like, I mean, there must have been some black and white types of humor like that that helped or Well, as, as I know the story and occasionally find it convenient to tell it, um, they laugh, you know. But, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. As I say, I haven't ever, I know the grandchildren of uh, these, uh, this couple but I've never had an occasion to tell them the story. I think they would enjoy it. I'm sure they would. Um, Might do that sometime. <laughs> what else about St. Louis when you arrived, when you came, how you found it? The city. Um, uh, can you 
describe any any well surprises that you had or any how did you find people really friendly? I I was surprised to find tremendous hostility among the Negro families because they considered us as intruders and taking jobs away from their daughters. That was most apparent. I just ignored it and went on because I felt sorry for them that they they and their daughters I say daughters because there were no men involved at the time and later a few did come but they went to work for the Urban League and didn't seem to bother, but they were very, very upset because these girls were coming here taking jobs away from their girls and consequently threatening them because at that time um, women could not marry and teach school and all of the education facilities here were geared to girls and not to boys. Um, prior to that, the boys had been able to attend what was known as Stowe Teachers College, but any male that wanted an education of high school had to go away they went to Lincoln or they went to other schools and the state would pay their tuition so that girls coming in threatened their economic status, I felt. But that wasn't our problem. We came because the job was offered to us. And we wouldn't have come had not, because nobody in Raleigh, North Carolina, would have thought about coming. As my mother put it, out to the wild and woolly west. <laughs> How did they feel about your coming? You were pretty sheltered growing up. Mm -hmm. And I accepted the job, signed the contract, before I told my mother about it. And I had no way of getting to St. Louis. I had no but to ask for transportation and money for a month until I could get a pay. And the only way I got I guess I would have gotten it eventually, but the only way I got it in time to be comfortable. Oh, but I'm trying to be helpful. Would 
would you like to have some cranberry juice? Uh, not right now, but maybe later. Um, okay, so the only way was to threaten <clears throat> to go and borrow it from a white person that I knew in the community that my grandparents and parents had had demons with. I said, well, if you won't give me the money, I will go down and ask Mr. Ed Nash to lend it to me, and then I can send it back. And of course, to borrow money from a white man <laughs> was, I, I thought I knew what I was doing, and I did. <laughs> for someone who was raised in such a shelter, you know, in the church and your father and your grandfather and, and to, you know. But I was not lacking in wit <laughs> and a sense of humor. And a sense of purpose. Um, all right, so you came here and were, you said you worked for the Public Assistance Agency? Yes. Was that completely Negro, all Negro? Or no, no, city? no, it was a city and state okay. organization. It was really the St. Louis Provident Association was the official name. And then it split when the relief load got so great and the state and federal government provided funds. And I Was think, that before you came or when you No, after, after I came. And then one of the other names I remember, Citizens Relief Association. And then it finally, State Welfare just a number of different names, but it was still the same organization. Right, and that was, um, that had to do, but that was still both um, public welfare. For, for uh, uh, Negroes and Yes, it was, whites. they just, the dis distribution was on segregated lines. Did you feel that uh, all things were equal or not in the help you got or the meetings you had or how, how did that work between in this agency? The, the differences that existed were so subtle that they, um, well, they They were not obvious out. There were always rumors that the white districts got more than the Negro districts, but it was nothing that I could ever prove because it wasn't in the white districts. And the rules were the same for everybody. What did you find in the 
what were the problems in the Negro community at this time that you were seeing? The same as they are now, the lack of employment. Um, then there were more people who really seemed to want to work than they are now because see, you're having about the third generation of people who have had uh, limited backgrounds and limited preparation. I think the efforts to see that uh, children attended school, the people who were involved in truancy then were far more dedicated than the people are now. The people seem to have been, to have had a different concept of their jobs. For an example, we were taught that you were to help people to bring them out of their um, desolation, to try to give them hope. And people who attended schools of social work years after I did, had the attitude that you should not inflict your middle class standards on. In other words, let them stay down there. And I don't go along with that. I didn't then and I don't now. I think there's no justification for whatever benefits you have had than to try to pass them on to others. It, it can be a fine line, I suppose, between uh, um, trying to do that Maybe. It's all in the doing. How? Yes. How did you find that your, your background, as far as your education, what they had taught you, applied to what you were actually doing? Did it put you in good stead? Because oftentimes the real world is different from the books. Very much so. Was different? Yes. Um, some of the turmoil in our society now about abortion. I have one story. There was a case that I was sent 
this young woman had come to St. Louis from somewhere. And in working, she had met a man and fallen in love with him. And she ended up pregnant. And she had to come for public assistance until she could have her baby and then find work. And we had to interview the men or to find them to see what. So I found this man and I always tried to respect the man and I had two places that I would ask them to meet me. One was public library behind some of the big posts out in the library you could sit and talk, or at All Saints Church down on Garrison and Locust. And I would always tell the priest when I had someone coming to see me so that there would be somebody around. And this man was very pathetic. He was married to a woman who was ill, chronically ill. And he did not have a large income. And he explained how he'd become involved with this woman. So he said, but Miss Weston, what can I do? I'm not going to give her up, I'm telling you. I said, well, there's Planned Parenthood. I said, but I can't tell you where it is. And I reached down under the desk and I said, here's a telephone directory. And I spelled it for him and told him how to find Planned Parenthood. There was a, not a project, but a program, a plan in the district where I was working at the time, where um, a supervisor would at random pick a case to be reviewed at a staff meeting. Of all of the cases, that one was filled. What happened? I gave the review of what happened just like it happened. And the, the um, staff meeting became hilarious because at that time you could not refer anybody to Planned Parenthood. And so they became hilarious? They laughed because <laughs> you did what you wanted. I, I did what I wanted to and do. They, did they, it was okay? Yeah, they didn't, I had no repercussions from it. They just thought I was ingenious. <laughs> <laughs> did your meetings change when uh, there was a mixed black and white? 
I had left the agency by that time. I had been fired because of my impaired vision. When did that start, Catherine? But my impaired vision uh -huh. at the age of four. Oh, really? My parents noticed that I was not seeing, and they took me to an ophthalmologist, but they could not tell at that time. See, 80 years ago, they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I went periodically, and then in 1934-35, I went, and they still did not have a satisfactory um, diagnosis as far as I was concerned, because glasses never helped. Mm -hmm. Then they found that it was a disease of the retina. And by the time 1956, it um, became obvious and I could no longer um, conceal my limitation. Mm -hmm. well, what did you do then? I was out of work for 18 months, mm -hmm. and uh, they very magnanimously referred me to the Missouri um, Society for the Blind. And there was nothing that they did. There were things they could have done, but that is the first real problem of uh, because then I had two strikes against me. I was blind and I was black. And that was a, a, a most difficult period. I was assigned a caseworker and uh, she wanted me to go to Kansas to a rehabilitation center where I could have learned the world of the blind. And it was expensive. It had, there was no assurance that I would have had employment as a result. So I refused. And as a result, they were not willing to do anything. And I demanded 
um, the home teacher for the blind, where I could learn typing and learn Braille. And after some weeks, I was given that. And I learned the rudiments of typing, but that was really not quite enough. And I did learn all that um, the teacher could provide me with Braille. Then I went to the Vandersmith, yeah, Vandersmith Secretarial School and took typing for, I guess, about a year, a little more. And was, after, was that a regular school or was uh, it? Secretary of school, uh -huh. yes. At that time, it was on Locust. And it wasn't for Braille, it didn't have Braille typewriters. Right? Oh, no, no, just, just regular typing. It was a rec regular secretarial You school. wanted to be in the world of the seeing as, a as much as I possibly as could, because um, I didn't know of anything that um, in the world for the sightless. And at that time, um, my impairment had not degenerated to its present state. I still traveled alone, did everything else that I had al always done. So I saw no, no reason for it. Well, excuse me, and if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, but was it bad enough at, at that particular time no. for them to have let you go? No, it really wasn't. Well, what was there? How could they have done that? That was a part of one of the things that I'll never understand because there were still things there that I could have done. Mm -hmm. But it was... Do you think it had to do with the color? Yes. The public, the public assistance letting you go? I think it did. And, and yet, did they have a need for you, a desperate need in the community, or was it? No, there were so many. They were, By that time? Right. In the 50s, there were plenty. Well, the need always seems so great everywhere, uh, no matter who. It, um, well, it was a difficult time for you. It was. But had you had you a group of uh, people that you had met that you uh, that were helpful? Yes and no. I um, paid my own tuition. The school, f I mean, at the Vandersmith Secretary of School. Mm -hmm. And then when I had, I won't say mastered, but when I had completed all that they could do, Miss Vandersmith tried to 
place as she did her other students. But she finally had to admit that there were places that uh, she thought I c could have been an asset, but they were not able to accept a person of color because I could have worked as a receptionist. I could have done a number of things where um, my skill uh, at typing would have uh, been an asset, but my other background of working with people would have been advantageous. But I wasn't able to break the ice. So, so you were never, didn't have the opportunity to even have an interview mm -mm. with anybody? No. Nope. Then they at the at the um, Missouri Society for the Blind suggested that I apply to Social, Social Security for um, disability. I was only 48, and they laughed at me. I had to go because that was what I was told to do. But I um, explained to the lady that I was following their mandate, but that I did not expect to be um, accepted. I didn't want her to feel badly at refusing mm -hmm. because I felt stupid going. I told had to, you to do. Right. So then I began trying to find work on my own. And I knew about the Feria Harris Home for the Aged. And I had heard that they were um, considering employing a social worker. So I did go and I did get a job working part-time and I worked from 1957 until 74. That was the part-time because that was what you wanted? or that No, was that what was what they offered. That was what they offered. I worked full-time, however. You did work full-time, even though you were working half-time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I understand. Um, the uh, fact of the 20 years that you were working uh, for the Public Assistance Agency, um, is there any more we could discuss on, on the, that was the depression. 
Yes, um, that was depression into the uh, World War II. Right, and um, is there, what, how did you, how did people get to the public assistance? How, how did they, how they filter into the system and, and what actually was maybe one of your days like at that time? They would come by word of mouth, or there were organizations like the Urban League and churches and schools that would see needs and would refer people. And what were some of the, when you say needs, was it, um, what were they? What kind of people did you see? What does a social worker do? You interview people. You try to determine their needs from what they say. And then um, in the beginning, the um, system was such that you would write requisitions or orders for people to go to the grocery store to buy food and um, the same thing with clothing their rent was paid by order the fuel it would give them orders for fuel there was no cash actually handled by the worker but you would um, have these requisitions that you would provide and the guideline would be so much for a person, a family of two, or for whatever. to Hooverville, the little island off the riverfront, what is known as a riverfront now, lots of railroad tracks, and there was um, I can remember only one time, though I remember going down, but when there were people who were looking for work and an order would come to the office for certain, you would go through your caseload to find out who might um, fit this particular order. And the houses were made out of cardboard boxes, these big um, crates like refrigerators would come in, heavy cardboard, and there were these shacks that people lived in. And I went to one once, but the despicable thing about it, it was in 1936, and man had a 1936 Buick sitting up outside of his shack. 
so they didn't just start, you know. Yeah. Um, when you said island, you meant island of people. No, there was something, Hooverville was called an island. Oh, it was? Uh-huh. Okay. But it wasn't an island. Actually, no. No. Mm -mm. Um, these shacks down uh, around the riverfront. Did your, was there any daycare in those days? No. <clears throat> Did you ever hear of a, uh, a, anything for children called the Nursery Foundation? Yes, but that was much later. Much later? Much later. It's right here on Euclid, it's still there. But nursery Foundation, I think, about the 60s. Oh, mm -hmm. it was early. Um, oh, late 50s, early. And I remember, um, I think a group from Temple Israel started Nursery Foundation. Mm -hmm. I believe so. Um, Rabbi Isserman. Mm -hmm. Did you know Rabbi Isserman? So did I. How did he interact? A very warm, caring person. Um, I did not have a personal relationship with him except that I sang with a group that he invited to Temple of Israel to sing. And uh, that was an occasion for us. And somehow I vaguely remember that the fact that it was a mixed group plus a group of Negroes that was uh, rare at Temple Israel. Rare at that time? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, were there just a few things like that? Wasn't Bishop Scarlet uh, involved in? A lot of. Uh, community activity because hmm. so much has been tried it's amazing that it's still with us right um, what agencies that you've mentioned the urban league but when you would see somebody and they would need the different, where you would send them to different areas, different places. Mm -hmm. what, what might have been some of those places that would have helped the Negro family at that time? The, uh, I know I'm asking you to go back away. 